What do you feel New York can do to prevent it itself from becoming another California? I'm happy to take that one first. Since California's our backyard, we've done more transactions there than anybody probably in the country. Hi, this is Neil, and it's time for a special bonus edition of Cannabis Daily. On November the 3rd, over 400 industry leaders, investors, and policymakers gathered at the New York Academy of Medicine to discuss the future of the New York cannabis market. Here is one of the speakers at that event. By the way, tickets are now on sale for the 2023 conference in October next year. Get them now at CannabisNewYork.live. New York State is perfectly placed to be the global hub of the cannabis industry. I believe that what happens in New York in the next two to five years will not only impact New York, but I believe that it will impact what happens in the rest of the country and possibly the world. Because we've seen in other industries that what happens in New York in other industries usually influences a lot of DC's policy. We know it's the financial and culture capital of the world. So we have a lot of responsibility right now for everybody in this room, including myself, to make sure that we do things right because what we do in the next two to five years will impact generations to come. To speak on this topic, we have Iris Dorbian, the Forbes contributor, who will be moderating this panel with Rob Seacrest, president of Polaris Equity Group, and Tahira Ramatula, partner of Highland Venture Partners, who I just saw at Columbia University alumni, we were speaking together on a similar topic. Will Muk, co-founder and managing member of Artemis Growth, and Corney Mellison, owner of Kenzoli. Welcome them to the stage, ladies and gentlemen, and get ready for another amazing panel. Welcome, everyone. Before we get into the meat and bones of this discussion, I'd like our panelists just to talk about how they um, how, how they got involved in investing in this market and what are the areas that you typically invest in. Thanks, Iris. I'm Rob Seacrest, co-founding partner of uh, Polaris Equity Group. We're the largest privately held mortgage REIT lending to real estate, cannabis use real estate in the country. We've done uh, 72 transactions for 535 million with 41 payoffs. We were the first dedicated lender. We're the first dedicated vehicle for the sector. We're the first to get investment grade rated and uh, the first to do institutional bond offering. So we've been in this sector for a while and the way that we got into it is uh, our local congressman is, is pretty much a well-known character in the industry, Dana Rohrbacher. So he's, he was, uh, my, he's my congressman and um, he smoked a few joints, I'll, I'll say that for sure, and, uh, <laughs> and fell into a few, a few pools at political fundraisers and all kinds of good stuff. But anyway, when he passed the Robacher-Blumenauer Amendment, which we believe is the most consequential legislation to pass to date, to us, that meant that this was the largest newly created asset class that we could lend on. We had originated more than 5,000 loans for over $5 billion prior to coming into this sector. And we had the skill and asset, we had the skill set to be able to pivot to the sector. So we started originating in 2016 and, and here we are today and it's been an, an enormously fun, but yet challenging ride, but we're just on the debt side and we're, we're trying to help 
all the people out there raising money, we're trying to make it so that they can have to raise less equity at the worst possible time when they're starting out. Yeah. Hi, Cornet Mellison. I'm from Amsterdam in the Netherlands. I run an investment firm. We're active in a lot of sectors in a lot of countries, but we're focusing since about two years on cannabis. And uh, we've acquired assets in, in Africa and in uh, an LP in Canada. But we're um, also the holder of one of the only 10 licenses in the Netherlands, which is the only recreational cannabis space at the moment in, in Europe. And uh, we're here in New York, and, and I think it's about uh, what the, the position of New York is. M uh, many of our co-investors are from New York. That's why we're here in the first place. And secondly, we're very keen to team up within, with entrepreneurs from this region to see whether and to what extent we can play a role in getting a New York growing license. And maybe we're also, we can also talk about uh, becoming active in the dispensary space. Hi, I'm Tikir Ramadilla. Um, I'm a partner at Highlands Venture Partners and also CEO of a brand called Commons. My experience on the investing side really comes from being an operator in this space uh, as well. I started early days with um, a company called Private Data Holdings that has built and launched Tilray and part of uh, with Leafly early days. And, and just being able to participate in those businesses and see a lot of the connectivity that was happening uh, early and then as that continued to evolve. So with Highlands, um, my partner and I focus on really consumer facing businesses, but also the overlap with consumer technology and the way that they intersect with other industries as well. And so we've done investments uh, across that landscape and also a little bit looking at the biotechnology. So what is what is informing some of those consumer products? We also focus with that entity on getting more women and minorities engaged on the investing side. So utilizing SPVs to do deal-by-deal -deal investing and ensuring that others have access to the investment opportunities that Many of us do, but um, on a smaller scale, so we're able to pool capital to provide that access to the deals. And good morning. It's great to be here. Sorry about my voice. Uh, I have a little bit of a frog in my throat from my lovely flu that I picked up. Uh, thank you, uh, uh, Travel. So my name is Will Muki. I'm a co-founder and managing member of Artemis Growth Partners. Uh, we are a 100% cannabis-focused private equity fund, late-stage venture, early-stage growth. We started investing really in 2017, 2018. Background-wise, we're all out of sort of the investment banking, financial side of the business, looking at cannabis really as an opportunity for ESG and impact investing. We manage about 390 million uh, in worldwide investments, the bulk of that really being in the US, but also South America uh, and, uh, and in Europe. And our focus has been really primarily on brands and distribution. Distribution was really the MSOs early on and some single-state operators. Also on genetics, which we think is an IP area and a great area for legacy entrepreneurs to bring their craft to the legal market. And then in technology. We're in Jane and uh, Leaf Trade and Nabis and have seen technology as an accelerant for both legacy operators and, uh, and the legal market. Okay. Uh Many experts predict that the legal adult use New York market will generate anywhere from 4 billion to 8 billion, 10 billion. This is the forecast they're making, even with the regulatory uncertainty and that New York still has a very large unregulated market. Do you agree with this forecast? I mean, I think the number, yes, in the billions, what that is, I, I won't begin to speculate. There can be any range, but 
there is, I mean, I think just touching on the, there is a very large unregulated market. Will and I were just talking about this before that has to, that has to transition. And if, when you add all of that together, I mean, it's, it's going to be a very substantial market, if not the largest in the world. And I think that's what a lot of people project. And I think it's actually New York's birthright to be the largest player, if not one of the largest, if not the largest player in the U.S. If you look at California, almost 40 million people, I think last year's taxable sales reached five or six billion. So when you look at a 19 million, 20 million population in New York, the authenticity of the culture here and the affinity for cannabis, both on the legal and illicit side, is only going to grow. And I think there's a huge tourist destination opportunity that hasn't even been incorporated into those numbers. A lot of those numbers are really based on domestic population and some travel, but not really seeing New York as a global destination. So I actually think that those numbers actually could be low long-term, but it all has to do with the authenticity of what the East Coast can deliver, that hip hop was born here, Biggie in, in Brooklyn. I think there's a tremendous amount of pull for New York being a leadership state in the US, but also a leadership node for the world. I would agree that those numbers are possible as the market matures. But California has been in the market since 2016 for recreational. It's finally gotten to there. So, yeah, we're going to get there. The states, it's going to be one of the, the largest markets in the world under one regulatory body like California. But you've got a slow pace coming out of the initial market of licenses that are coming out. You've got other constraints that other larger operators can't can't put in investment in different vehicles. So it's going it's not going to get there for a long time. And so, yeah, those are those are numbers. That's great, but you know, we're at 2022, and California is just getting to. We believe it's eight billion that's going out of the state, six billion taxable, probably maybe as much as 10 billion is going through that state. But it it takes time for all this stuff to get worked out. And even if everything is perfect, if there's comment periods and implementation periods and build out periods. Capital has to be raised. You've got limits on who can actually own the licenses. They've got convictions. How are they going to raise that equity? Who's going to be able to lend to them? There's a lot of things that they didn't talk to us about, and we won't be able to provide capital to a lot of those people. It's unfortunate. You mentioned California, and that was that was definitely on my cheat sheet of a list of questions. Oh, California. I have written so many articles about the California market. And let's just say it is a mess. We know it is a mess. You know, it has a lot of regulatory challenges and it has a very large unregulated market. And yet California is has one of the largest it is it is the largest cannabis market in the country and the largest cannabis market, one of the largest cannabis markets in the world. What do you feel New York can do to prevent it itself from becoming another California? I'm, I'm happy to take that one first since California is our backyard and we've done more transactions there than anybody probably in the country. The bigger challenge is, is that if you don't have enforcement to stamp out the illegal side of the business, you can't have a thriving legal side. And that's easy for me to say that, but I just want to take you one step deeper. So in, in California, the cannabis control has got enforcement, but their enforcement is on the regulatory side. They don't have people going out with guns to stop the breakdown and knock down the illegal grows and the dispensaries and things like that. So 
th that takes policing and it takes a different mindset and resources to go after that. And the police in California, that is the last thing that they're going to do in an urban environment. In a sub in a, in a suburban environment, you got to go to the sheriffs. And they're not going to do that. They don't have the resources. So. I try to take people a little bit further down the steps. If, if they, in, in New York, they're going to have their own, uh, if the cannabis is enforcement is, is going to be done through their own tax base or however that they're going to do it, who's actually going after the illegal operators? Because generally what they do is they go after and regulate the, the legal operators because that's the easy stuff. There's no risk there. And so that's my concern is if you can't stamp out that illegal market, everything that you're doing is being stifled. I, I don't disagree that the illicit market is the biggest competition right now. I, I would take issue that I don't see policing and guns going into shutting down operations. I think that's absolutely the wrong message for, for New York State and frankly for the country. Because the legacy market has been evergreen, has existed since almost the beginning of time. And the way to bring the legacy market into the legal market isn't by further enforcement and policing. You need to have enforcement to enforce the rules but you need to have the incentive to bring the legacy market into the legal market. And I think where California and where New York could learn from California is they aired, they had excise taxes and just over taxation all the way down, aside from 280, 280E is what we all suffer, but the state itself set up a really terrible paradigm for the operators in, in, in California, which is why when you go to any bodega, you see our companies in California product in the shelf. It's because a legacy operator in California, even that has transitioned to the legal market, can't make money. They're sending 20%, 30%, 60% of their inventory across state lines. So New York has the opportunity now, instead of going with the enforcement side, which I think needs to be there to enforce the rules, but the way to get illegal bodegas and other operators into the legal market is to give them incentives to come. One is if you're in the legacy market, you're only making your income. You have no equity value. You're not creating generational wealth. You're not having something that you can transfer on to your, your family or to sell uh, in the marketplace. So bringing uh, those operators into a legal market where they can generate generational wealth is huge. You can do that by tax abatements. You can lower the, the bar. You can actually not only have the Chris Weber Fund, which is associated with hard assets, but the state or the city or both could offer venture debt. They could create a program that could float a bond and they can give zero cash interest debts, basically accrual debt, which is effectively equity that could be repaid by those operators and give a, a very smooth transition for those legacy businesses to come in. You will have some people that will opt out. I mean, we've heard this from the early panelists and we hear this in the conversations outside. Not everyone's going to come over, but you can certainly change the paradigm that California had to make New York a more favorable environment for legacy to transition into, into legal. And I think just to add there, I mean, New York has a very strong legacy market. People are used to it delivery, other ways to purchase cannabis. And they're also going to be sensitive to the price. And so that competition is something, it's not just about the operators themselves, but how do those consumers, what's their incentive to switch over if they have their regular guy that they've been going to forever who's been operating. And now you can't differentiate between the product, unfortunately, that nobody's asking for testing results. But your packaging looks the same. You're actually getting it from the same sources that are providing to other legal operators. And so the differentiation point for the consumer ends up being the price. And if they are going to get taxed pretty substantially on the other side, they're also not going to accept it and they will keep it alive as well. And so there's a balance there that you have to strike not only with the operators, but 
also appealing to the consumer to make that switch over. There are plenty of people who are not comfortable buying in the legacy market, but there are a lot of people, and I say this because I live close to Washington Square Park and I go through there every day and I see what's happening there and people are absolutely fine with what's happening and, and very comfortable and not necessarily the people that you would think who would be comfortable purchasing, but they think it's, they also think it's legal. They also think it's fine. I went to NYU uh, yeah. a million years ago, so <laughs> I am very familiar with the goings on in Washington yeah. Square Park. And I mean, that's been going on since time forever. Yeah, exactly. But the scale now is different where they're like branded tables and like <laughs> promos going on and a buy one, get one. And I'm like, what is happening here? <laughs> that didn't happen in my yeah. day. Yeah. And my day was more like, you know, uh, seeing a uh, just people just sort of in tone and baritones, loose joints, loose joints. <laughs> yeah, now it's like billboards practically because it's just so open and police are there and you know there's a, there's a policy now to not enforce, which I think is not having the guns drawn and, and that I think that is the right thing to do, but the also it's, it's made it very comfortable for people to operate in that way. And, and that is a really challenging thing to roll back. I, I agree with the, the overtaxation, I, and I agree with it that. But it, if you don't have to pay taxes, and it comes to price, and it's the same product, it you at some point you've got to enforce some rules. You can only get so much, so much movement of people that are willing to be compliant. And when you have a transition of illegal operators trying to move them into the legal operators, they're going to be the last ones to move. And so. Where is that dichotomy? Where is that balance of if there's no enforcement whatsoever and you're just trying to, to reduce the taxes and trying to do a, a bond and there's only so much you can do because the, the cost of paying taxes and, and even complying with the regulatory, it just it's, it's a tough one. And I, we struggle with it every day trying to figure it out. And I, I, I agree with my panelists here. It's a, it's a tough, but I, I feel like if there's no enforcement, like what? Why I, I would go as long as I could until I have to do it, you know. Another issue with uh, the New York market is uh, that the the medical market has been historically small and anemic, and I know this because I've written a lot about it. Uh, I, I wrote an article several years ago about New York's troubled history with cannabis, you know, dating back from the Rockefeller laws of the 1970s, which unfairly targeted poor people and, and people of color. And that, that was um, these laws that uh, no one's familiar with, which if you were caught with a joint or a small gram of marijuana, you would be sentenced to like 20 years in jail. It was really crazy. And the people who were really hurt by it were the poor people, you know, people who did not have access to decent legal representation. Okay. So the problem with art, with the medical market uh, is it's historically small, thanks to a cumbersome application process and a high licensing fees that have shut out the small mom and pop shops in favor of the big multi-state operators. Now, New York, uh, the legal adult use market, which hasn't quite rolled out yet, but they're uh, setting a framework of regulations, they are placing a high priority on social equity in the initial round of licenses to those who have been adversely affected by the war on drugs. 
Do you think that's going to be enough to ensure that the small mom and pop shops will get their fair share in this market that was this medical dominated by the Goliaths, the big multi-state operators? I'm happy to take that one first. So most states have no distinguishing between medical and recreational when the product is being made in most states it's not delineated until it's actually sold and so once the state has gone recreational nobody's going to pull out their medical card so that to, to buy it anymore there's no advantage in in the we all all of us support the medical benefits of, of cannabis but from the political spectrum everybody rolls out medical cannabis first and, and high taxes to get that state to go into it initially, and then they go in, into recreational. It's just the it's just it's the ploy that it's being used to go to go down. In reality, in my perspective, the medical use cannabis is is kind of a false flag because it's just how to get the recreational market started. In reality, the medical research market is the federal side and the DEA licenses. We funded the first one earlier this year. And that is, a, is the research side. And that side is where all the research is actually being done at the clinical level and, and the, what we need to be done so that, that these drugs can, things can be discovered and, and proven and then rolled out through across the country. The state medical market is just, it's not, it's not a real medical market. It's just to say, hey, this is, for, this is just a way for people to get access initially. But for the true medical benefits, that's on the DEA side, the federal licenses, which can cross state lines, can import and export, and they can only sell and or they can only exchange between their own license uh, DEA licenses. We're investors in MSOs, so I'm I'm going against uh, some of our operators, but the MSOs were the ones that were promising to support the medical market, to do research, to have more data, to have more prescriptions, to actually have efficacy shown in trials that doctors could, could then prescribe. And then behind that the promise was reimbursement. And that I would say doesn't exist in the US. You look at Germany and Germany has a codified medical program that has full reimbursement, has 220,000 patients on the, on the roll and growing. And actually in the environment where Germany is going to go to wreck, the codified medical market is gonna stay in place. And so the US has basically failed the medical patient. And I, I think that, you, Rob, you're actually right, that medical has been sort of wreck and drag. And only when wreck comes do the MSOs really care because they're making a lot of money. And the, your medical card is basically a tax payment card. You get a little bit of a discount, but you don't really get anything beyond that. So I think there's a real opportunity to still turn around and come back and serve the patient. I think that data coming through and having, frankly, either state, uh, I would be so, so radical as to say Medicaid and Medicare, stepping in to actually give discounts, copay uh, framework, as you do with any other generic drug. I'm sorry, but cannabis coming from an MSO is just a branded generic. Street cannabis is the generic. So we do that with opioids. <laughs> Why don't we do that with cannabis? So there's a chance to come back. But I mean, that's a huge target that I'm not even sure we'll ever reach in, in the US, disappointingly. Courtney, you've been very silent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, the, the only thing I wanted to say is um, uh, have a close look at what's happening or what happened in Canada, uh, where you see an abundance of uh, licensed producers and uh, with the remaining cumulative market cap of 5% of what it, what it was at the top. Uh, and at the others, uh, on the other hand, look at what's happening in the Netherlands, which is the first recreational legalization place in Europe where there's only 10 licenses. So it's the 
opposite, really. And in both cases, huge design mistakes have been made in terms of allowing people from the legacy space access to the to the uh, to, to the, basically the new business. And in the Netherlands, we've seen one of the one of the problems we faced is that the amounts and I'm talking about growing now, not about dispensaries. The, the amounts of capital that are that are required are too big for the for the average legacy player which basically makes you miss out on the opportunity of capitalizing on that knowledge base so design let's say this the design mistakes are a big problem in those in the have been a big problem in those markets and and i think it's very very important to have a close look at how they do it you spoke about germany in germany it's very unclear how they will go about the recreational legalization I mean, it's part of their coalition agreement, but it's still very, very unclear how this is going to happen. Iris, I don't know if any of these states really figure anything out from the previous states because they all have their own political jurisdiction. And I don't think the 50th state to be the last one is going to get any more right than the first one. You know, it's just it's such a, a there's so many underlying nice words. Nice words. Yeah. I, <laughs> Wild know. and woolly. But, but I, so, Iris, you, you asked about how do you how do you allow, provide for, and capitalize legacy operators or, or even just small businesses to compete against the MSOs? And I think that many times the focus has been on us. Like, how does the private capital come in and flow to support those businesses? The reality is there's not a lot of private capital. Like, uh, we run close to $400 million, and we don't have a big budget to go out and support seed or early stage operators that are, that are pre-revenue. We invest usually later stage. And there's not a lot of capital out there for those, those operators. And so they're going to get snuffed out day one if there isn't some form of capital coming from a source that can provide it. And that source really should be the state and the cities because they're the ones who incarcerated these people in the first place. If you want to put money back into the system, it's their responsibility. We can support, but it really has to be a, an advocacy of the entire population to work with their politicians and put money into the system. And so we're pushing really hard from the private market to get that. We'll be in support, but we can't be the engine on the train. I'm, I love Will's idea. We talk about this. Some of the states and cities do talk to us in advance of rolling out their program. But what we try to remind them of is it doesn't do any good if you just provide that capital without qualifying the people that are running it. But more importantly, we can't lend to somebody if you gave them the money. So either you're gonna give them the money and be the guarantor, it doesn't matter to us. So they missed this big step. So when we were talking last week, I was here speaking with the, the, the New York, um, the, the head of cannabis control here. And I'm like, look, you've gotta have a guarantor that goes along with this. Your 200 million is useless to us. We can't, we can't have somebody that you gave them 10 million dollars and want to borrow two million from us. It, it, we need a guarantor. And if they don't have one, we need them to be experienced. And 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 we, but the guarant, the money has to be the person that providing the money. We source all that money all the way down the line, and we require the guarantee from the person that put the money up. And so that's a big miss, I think. And I think two parts on that. So on the investing side of it, it's also New York hasn't made it that easy to invest in multiple groups. That's still very unclear on what, how that's going to land. So there are groups who want to support social equity, but if you can only invest in one, 
then that's not going to work. And that's also just not going to function for an investor. But the other side, and I think what, what you're touching on too, is the support services. What are you doing to actually support a business? A lot of these people may have been, and this is where other states have gone wrong, is that they move people to the front of the line, give them a license, but they don't know how to run a business. And New York has done a better job on like needing that business structure and having you know several years of an operating business. But there's still a lot that goes into that that has to be supported. And there are programs that are being developed and, and we'll see how those go. And I think that is a differentiator for the state of New York, but it's still very early, in my opinion, to know how some of that plays out. And then to your point about Yes, how are you going to guarantee a business? How are you actually going to underwrite any of these businesses? Because most businesses, when an investor comes in and you're looking at the landscape of it, you're going off a of previous operating experience, other businesses, the assets that you have, you name it. And it's Can a I whole process. Something? Yeah, so I hear a lot of new things about guarantors and, and, the, and an equity fund and social equity, what have you. I can only say that over the course of the past five, six weeks, we've been approached by very, very proficient New York entrepreneurs, and we've dis we've embarked on a process to to fund them, and uh, we will do that without the help of the government or without the help of anybody, because we think that if it's entrepreneurial spirit, there'll be a way to uh, to succeed, and that's the the kind of people we've been looking for worldwide, and we're also looking for them here in New York. Yeah, for for equity that. That's awesome. So we would, if you were, if we were to step up one of your operators, we would need you to be the guarantor for for that. Is what my my point is. And and then back to that two hundred million dollar uh, New York fund. There's might be some gating issues if that money is coming from other banks that are in the sector. Now they're on both sides of the transaction, and you have conflicts there. So they're not actually able going to be. We call it constructive lending. You can't be on both sides of the transaction. So you're going to run into some other issues there too. Can I say a last word about uh, the Netherlands, Iris? Yeah, absolutely. So the Netherlands, for all intents and purposes, is the oldest cannabis place in in the world, right? So we legalized in a very odd way cannabis fifty odd years ago, right? And uh, it is legalized in the sense that possession is legal, shops are legal. We call them coffee shops. You call them dispensaries. Uh, everything's been legal, with the notable exception of growing. So now. Holland as last in 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 line is is legalizing the growing as well. Now what we've seen is that the amounts of capital that are required to do to set up a decent growing business are huge. For, at least from my standards, we're talking about 20, 30 million dollars per outfit, and and this is only 10 of them. Okay, so what's my point? Uh, there is in the I know all 10 of them. And I'm one of one of them myself as a financier. And uh, I can tell you one thing, there is not one euro of debt in the entire combined capital structure of all those operations. It's all private money. And one of the problems we're facing, and then I'll stop, is that people with a lot of money out of the legacy space who would love to go into this typically don't qualify for the security clearance or uh, the source of capital, so that it has to come from the from the let's say the, the regular corporate world, and that's been a challenge. So there's a, there's still out of the ten licenses, at least four who don't have the funding in order, and the other ones have put together sometimes very complicated syndicates of people in order to get to that to those amounts. That is where entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial financiers with 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 guts need to step in.
with all respect for, for lenders and debt providers. I, I love the pull yourself up by your bootstraps and be entrepreneurial, but there are going to be so few that can actually do that. If we're talking about trying to change an entire marketplace, I think we need to have more assistance because we can, as Tahir is saying, we can support one or two target businesses that have an entrepreneur behind it. We, we're doing that in New York State. We were part of the, the slowdown of the process two years ago to try and get to where we are today with the MRTA, and I think they've done a great job. Um, it's kind of like Winston Churchill, though. It's like democracy. It's the worst form of government, except for every other form of government. So the MRTA is kind of the, the best social equity, but there's still improvement. I love the idea that it's evolving. It's kind of a working document that will continue to evolve. But I, I think that we're going to fail. I think that if we just say that it's going to be private capital, there's a great family office network coming out of Europe that doesn't exist here. And, and because of the federal illegality here, the attestations, even with large funds that don't have a registered entity that could invest, they don't invest because their LPs don't allow them to invest. So the capital pool is really tiny. And I think we have to figure out ways of widening that, amplifying that. Again, we can put money in. We'd love to have a multiplier effect. We put a dollar in, have someone else put three dollars in. Yeah, and we we did look at the facilities there. We can lend there um, with a, a different structure. Our concern there was not that we, we were able to get through and find transactions that were we could have lent on. The issue for us was how the frick are you going to be able to have a sustainable market when you can import from other countries that don't have ESG, that don't have all the, the labor costs, the higher CapEx, OpEx costs, and you can import it into your own market. And that we just couldn't couldn't get around uh, solving for that. Um, we were great, really grateful to hear that Germany is gonna protect the market for a period of time, because we, we, we walked away from all the markets, because if you couldn't operate within your local market and be profitable, it, it was a non-starter to put 20, 30, $50 million into a facility and this massive CapEx, and yet you could have somebody from South America importing GMP certified and, and have at you know a tenth of the cost. It just doesn't make sense. And that's applicable to uh, to medicinal because recreationally it's not gonna it's not gonna be uh, uh, import based in, in Germany. But the rest, of the, this is the EU, just in in general. Yeah, well, there is, there is at, at the moment it's only Germany which is imminent and the Netherlands which is legalized, and the rest is still to come. Another big problem in, in terms of financing, and it's again I've been writing about this market on and off since 2013, when there were just only two legal markets, Colorado and Washington State. And it always comes up, especially with the small mom and pop shops, not not with the multi-state operators that have the connections, the banking ban, the banking ban. As we know, uh, following this space, there has been legislation, uh, there has been an attempt to uh, to pass the Safe Banking Act, which would not penalize banks and financial institutions from working with cannabis businesses. And I'm just wondering, what are your thoughts about the problem that we have in this country with the banking? I can go real quick for, I know we got a couple minutes. So there's 704 banks listed on FinCET's websites. That's 15% of all the banks in the country are already 
in the depositor relation. We've never not seen a transaction that didn't have banking today. If a bank wanted to be in it today, they could be in it. They can. It's just a reputational risk there. So we're also tracking four dozen direct lenders that are banks that are lending today, including our own bank. So the banking issue is not the depositor and the lending side. It's the custodial of assets is more of the side. And it's the ability not able to use credit cards at the dispensary is where the cash buildup starts. And then you're trying to move that cash through the system. So safe banking, we're hoping will fix at least the custodial issues and potentially uplisting. But the credit card uh, issue is, is where that cash buildup happens. And most people don't know that that's the case. And most people have no clue how many banks are actually active in the space as well. But you can go on FinCET's website and they give it updated each year. And so I recently just ran the number of how many total banks there are relative to the 704. And we're, I think it's 16% of all banks are currently banking cannabis doing deposit relations. So it's more robust than anybody thinks. And the problem isn't just for, for operators, it's for funds as well. So we'll wrap. The last thing I'd say on, on SAFE is because we want SAFE, time. we'd love to see what happens after the midterms is you don't have to wait for SAFE. We can deschedule. If we just deschedule, we de facto, without congressional action, have legalized cannabis. So it's great that this has moved into the FDA and there's a conversation happening there. I'm not putting any bets down that it's going to happen that way, but there are multiple avenues to get to a, a better world. One can be through rescheduling or descheduling of cannabis. The other is going through the longer process, which is federal legalization, starting with safe banking. We need it. We absolutely need it. So as whoever said on the last panel, go out and vote, vote for the right people and, uh, and push this forward. Any final thoughts? Sir? I, I concur. <laughs> well, I think that's it. And uh, thank you so much for um, sharing your thoughts on investing in this market. And thank you to our audience for listening so rapidly. It's greatly appreciated. One thought is I think a lot of people missed is this this thing with Canopy Grove and, and acreage. You're going to see a lot of movement in the next six months. I don't think anybody realizes what really happened here. So look for companies actually able to start exchanging shares and having liquidity. The CSX is going to run as fast as they possibly can to provide liquidity before the U.S. market goes. So I think everybody missed that in the announcement. And so no, that, yeah, that's Toronto that, is, is going to be a, a, a little bubble of activity with this, uh, this new action. So it's good. That's, that's clear to go today. So there we had Iris Dorbian from Forbes, who was moderating the event. Rob Seacrest, the president of Pelarus Equity Group. Tahira, Remat Tahira Rematurla, a partner from Highland Venture Partners. Well, Moiki, co-founder and managing member of Artemis Growth, and Corne Melisen, owner at Kenzol. And they're all speaking at the recent Business of Cannabis New York event. Now, you can secure your seat at next year's event right this second. It's scheduled for the 4th of October, 2023. Tickets are on sale at CannabisNewYork.live. You'll find the link in the show notes.